Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. Now it's time to turn our attention to God's Word. Uh, this morning we're hearing God's Word from Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 8. Um, if you recall, if you've been here for the past couple weeks, um, and if you haven't been to catch you up, we are uh, we're, we're working our way through Acts as we listen to God's Word. And in particular, in this section of Acts, we are seeing Paul and Barnabas on what's called their first missionary journey. They were sent out um, by the church at Antioch, um, a major city on the Mediterranean coast, and sent out to bring the gospel to more places who had not heard it before. And so in the book of Acts, Luke, the author of Acts, records the, the kind of step-by-step progress of their journey. First um, at, uh, on the island of Cyprus, and then at Pisidian Antioch, and then um, from Pisidian Antioch, they went on to Iconium. And we saw last week that Paul had faced persecution and, and suffering. He had been driven out by opposition from the Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders who were jealous of the crowds that Paul was attracting, the people who were responding to the good news of Jesus. And so they drove him out of Pisidian Antioch, and then they drove him out of Iconium, and it concluded, uh, the last part we read just said that he went on to, uh, they, they fled, learning that they were about to get attacked. Um, Paul and Barnabas fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia, and continued to preach the gospel. So it ended on that hopeful note last week um, of people responding to God's grace and Paul and Barnabas extending that grace to others. So this week, um, we're going to read of what happened at Lystra um, and the conclusion of their journey. And it's it's... It's notable. <laughs> so I'll just I'll just say that. Uh, so listen to this journey, and then we'll see what God has for us this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 14, starting at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you that for this amazing work that you did uh, through Paul and Barnabas so long ago. We thank you that it's been written down for us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that these are your very words for us today. We pray that by your Spirit you would speak to our hearts, show us what you have for us this morning, that your word might sink deep into our hearts and change the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know uh, right now is not really a time for watching sports, since there's not much sports happening, but the NFL draft did happen, and so we can, we can look with hope to a future sports season uh, for those who are into football. And it makes me reflect a little bit on a, a quirk of mine about sports teams and cheering for sports teams. Uh, of course, my, my primary loyalties uh, are in the city of my birth with all teams from Washington, which is, which is rough, uh, I'll admit, for those of you who also join in those loyalties to a, a football team and a basketball team that have not been good really for a very long time. Um, fortunately, there's a, a decent baseball team now, and uh, soccer's pretty good most of the time. Hockey's pretty good, uh, but uh, but football and basketball, whew, it's tough. But but a further quirk is once we get beyond the world of Washington sports, uh, most people, when you talk to them, they they kind of like to root for the underdog. They they love an upset. Um, and and an interesting fact about me is is I tend to root for the champion. Um, I actually I like dynasties. I love, like, I don't, I don't, I don't really like the Patriots because who can, but, but I do respect the Patriots, right? I respect their dynasty. I love, I love the idea that there could be another football team that has an unbeaten season. I want to see it happen. I want, I love to see dominance and records fall and great performances. And so when you think about those, those championship teams, like the Patriots, like the Bulls in the 90s, like other great dynasties, of course, they're powered by great players. But if you look at them, you realize that it's not just like there's one great player who's so much greater than everybody else. One player does not create a dynasty. Those dynasties happen because of organizations and cultures that everybody finds their role in, finds their place. And when players try to get out of hand and try to get more glory for themselves, it doesn't go well. And they end up in the Patriots or forever shipping off players who aren't who who were good there. They go somewhere else and they're not as good. And then they bring in players who were no good somewhere else. They work them into the system and boom, they're producing great things. And great systems and cultures do that. But everybody in that has to see has to see their role and has to see that the good of the team is greater than their own individual glory. And one of the things we see here in Acts even though, of course, this is focused in human terms on Paul and Barnabas, is that Paul and Barnabas have no doubt 
about what is most important. They have no doubt about who is supreme in all of this. We see it most clearly, of course, when, when the people of Lystra are amazed at the miracle done by Paul's hands. They're like, the gods are here. And if you recall, uh, a little bit earlier in Acts, we saw people saying, hey, the voice of a god. It was the people of Tyre and Sidon speaking to Herod. And Herod just kind of sat on his throne like, well, that sounds nice. And he was struck down. Paul, and like Peter before him, like all the apostles, will have none of that. They will have nothing take away from the glory of God. As soon as he realizes what's going on, that they're treating them as God. See verse 14? When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. But let me tell you about the one who does these things. Let me tell you about God. Because Paul knew, and the message of all of this part of Acts for us, is that God is supreme over all. And so if we are to follow God, if we are to be Christians, if we are to be followers of God, if we are to make progress in this world, we must find our place under God's being supreme. We have to recognize his supremacy and then find our place within that. We have to walk in his paths, not in our own. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to do that as people. We're full of our own ideas and our own plans. We like our own pleasures. We like people to say good things about us. Everybody likes for people to give them a compliment. I mean, we can look at this and be like, yeah, Paul did the right thing there. But, you know, it's hard when people are saying, hey, you did a great thing to, to give the glory instead to God. It's hard when your plans get changed, when people persecute you to just carry on and say, well, I guess God is moving me on to this city and this place. It's hard, we'll see at the end here, that Paul, instead of just going home when he preached the gospel in all these cities, he goes back through to make sure that they have what they need to strengthen them and encourage them in their faith. We all have our own plans and desires, and some of those of us who are more planning-oriented, even when there's problems, even when there's situations, we tend to look at them and be like, what can I do? I've got a plan. I can fix that. I can make my own way. And yet God calls us here in these stories and acts, he calls us to recognize that he is supreme. And the more we reflect on his supremacy, the more we reflect on his power, the better able we are to walk in his paths rather than our own. So as we look through this more carefully, there's really three aspects of God's power and his being supreme here. First, we see that God is supreme over other gods. Secondly, we see that God is supreme even over our suffering. And third, we see that God is supreme over our human weaknesses. So God is supreme over other gods, over our suffering, and over human weaknesses. The one that, that stands out the most is probably over other gods. That's really the major focus here at the beginning. When, um, when, when the people of Lystra are saying that Paul and Barnabas are gods because he did, because a miracle was done through the hand of Paul, he will have none of that. None of, I will be a God. No, I will not be taken as a God. I will not be looked at as a God. That will not happen. Certainly not to give credence to the, the false gods of Zeus and Hermes. And look at what he says after he cries out, we're just men, but uh, look at the rest of verse 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things 
Turn from the worship of Zeus and Hermes, of seeing everything and attributing it to one of these small gods, these vain things, to a living God. Not like one of your idols that you have a temple to, not like a statue, but a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then down to verse 17. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul is pointing out that all these other things that we see, that back then people would attribute to this whole pantheon of God, Zeus, Hermes, and all the others. And now we might attribute to nature or human ingenuity or all these or technology or social progress. Paul says all the good that you receive, all the good things, they come from a living God, a real God, a God who knows you and cares about you. He is the one that we must worship. And so we, uh, we can fall into the, we, we may look at this like, man, that's kind of silly that they would see a man healed and they would start bringing out, uh, what did they bring out? Oxen and garlands to the gates. To sacrifice. Like we don't do that kind of thing anymore. But it's worth us reflecting on how it is that we still mix up the gifts of God and the person of God. And we turn the gifts and our focus on God's gifts, the good things like rain, money, family, relationships, purpose, jobs, houses, all the good things that are gifts from God that Paul tells us here he has given to us. And we make those things into the gods themselves. And we look for our value and significance from the things, the created things, rather than the creator of all things. And that's really what Paul's warning for us today is. It's a reminder that God is supreme. The one who made these things, the one who is a living God, is greater than the things he has given to us. And so to realize this, to realize what's happening, we, it, it takes some reflection. What, what is a God? A God is what, what or who you worship. You gain significance from. You gain pleasure from it. Uh, what affects how you feel about yourself, how you feel that you are doing. And sometimes it's just a matter of paying attention. I recently read a fascinating book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. Um, something that, you know, in its own right is probably worth worth reading for many of us. Um, but, but what was interesting was the bigger picture of it. it. In this book, the author points out a lot of, of research and insight into how our phones and, and what she's looking at really affect the way that we think, what hold they have on our minds. Some from just an observational perspective, some from a neurobiological perspective, how our phones are affecting us, and in particular, how we turn to our phones for hope for significance, for excitement. And one of the things she encourages in this how to break up with your phone, how to get away from the hold that it has on you, is paying attention to your feelings. How am I feeling when I turn to my phone? And when I'm done scrolling through my phone for a while, how does that make me feel? What is this God that I have in my hand? What is it actually doing for me? Am I turning to it for hope, for help? And is it giving me what I want? And her book, I mean, this is a completely secular book uh, from a secular perspective. Her conclusion, of course, with your phone, it's, it's not even giving you what you want. But this doesn't just apply to your phones. This applies to all kinds of other things. That you can become more mindful of your feelings and your emotions 
And where you are turning, what things are you turning to? What people are you turning to when you need hope, when you need help, when you need distraction, when you need entertainment, when you need significance? And we can all reflect on where we're putting our hope. And what are those little gods doing for us? And when we do that, when we think about that, we'll realize that they often, they leave us turned up empty. Whether we're talking about the excitement of our phones, the excitement of something new, whether we're talking about the stuff that money can buy for us, whether we're talking about the feeling of happiness that comes from relationships with people, whether we're talking about the feeling of pride that comes from associating ourselves with a sports team. None of these gods will ultimately satisfy what we need because we long for the true and living God. And so Paul calls us just as much as he called the people of Lystra to turn to the living God, to find our hope in him because God is supreme over any other God. But not just supreme over other gods, he's even supreme over our suffering. Do you notice how fast this story turned? One moment, the people of Lystra were exalting Paul and Barnabas as gods, ready to sacrifice oxen to them, ready to worship them. Paul said, don't do that. And so they turn around in verse 19, and the Jewish leaders show up from Antioch and Iconium. They persuade the crowds, and all of a sudden, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. All of a sudden, the worship of the people turns into the stoning of the people. And we know that happens if we put our faith in people. Uh, people are fickle and people change. But more important for us here is how Paul responds to that suffering, knowing that God is supreme. They dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. He looked dead, and the disciples gathered about him. He rose up and entered the city. No like explanation, no great details here of what medical stuff they performed on him, what they did, just the clear declaration that God's mission will not be stopped by suffering. The stoning of Paul to the point that he looked dead, God is no match for God. God is supreme over that suffering. And he just lifted Paul right back up. He went into the city. And on the next day, he went on to Derby. He just continued to preach the Gospels. And did you catch verse 21? When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Like he went on to Derby, not terrified of the stoning, but just to preach there, to make disciples there. And then he came back to Lystra where they had just stoned him. And then back to Iconium where they had driven him out of there. And Antioch where they had driven him out. Because Paul's suffering was nothing in the face of a God who is supreme over suffering. And even then, as, what was his message? He didn't even tell the people that, oh, this is, this is just for me, or this was nothing. Look at verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul to these people, these new people, these new converts to Christianity, new followers of Jesus, he minces no words about the hardship of the Christian, of, uh, Christian life. And that's his truth. That, that's it. Were his words for them? They're his words for us too. That we cannot say that the Christian life is going to be easy. I wish we could. I wish we could say that, hey, if you become a Christian, the coronavirus will not touch you. Can't say it. 
Pastors are getting sick. Pastors are dying. Other Christians are dying. It touches all of us. That's not the promise of God. The promise of God is not that we will not suffer. The promise of God is that the suffering is worth it. That the price of following Jesus is hardship. It is suffering. But through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That the path to the kingdom is through suffering. And and we get this. We understand that there are some things that are worth suffering for. To go back to our sports analogy from earlier, athletes put in a tremendous amount of effort and they suffer and it's painful. They go through all kinds of hardships, strict discipline, strict training, pain for the prize of glory in their sport. Whether that's the the individual training and suffering for the glory of your own self-satisfaction and enjoyment or at the higher levels, the glory of the crowds, the payment of, of prizes and money. But we look at that and we're like, yeah, that's worth it. Other things, you know, anything's, anything's worth doing is worth, is worth working for, right? It, it, things take work. We get that. We have all these truisms and proverbs about that. So we understand this. It's a measure. It's, it's a sign of God's grace in our life that we have this innate understanding that some things are worth suffering. And Paul's message for us is that the kingdom of God is worth suffering. And the suffering that goes into the kingdom of God is actually far deeper and more real than any effort or suffering we put in for sports or life or anything else. Those kinds of suffering are really on a a clear cost-reward kind of thing. Like, is it worth this suffering? Yeah, I can see the outcome. If I suffer this way, I'll get this outcome. That's worth it. The kingdom of God calls us into suffering that is beyond what we can understand. We don't know what it means, what what suffering will, will be required to follow Jesus. But the hope is not just trite words that it's worth it. But the hope is that in in being Christians, in walking with God, we follow a suffering Savior. That the path that Jesus laid down for us was one of suffering. And we see in his life and in his death that suffering really does lead to glory. That his, his life of suffering drew many people in It modeled the kingdom of God for us and his death on the cross, his ultimate suffering, even being separated from God himself, led to life for all of us as he took that punishment for sin. And then he was resurrected and he reigns on high. And the Bible is clear throughout the rest of the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus that suffering is our path as well. That while Jesus has taken the punishment for our sins, that the life of suffering is still what Christians are called to. And the hope of resurrection is the same for us. The Bible calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection for all of us. That we know that through suffering, we will extend the gospel to other people. We will invite more into the kingdom. We will experience God's blessing, God's pleasure, his provision, his protection. And ultimately, we will experience his resurrection. We experience tastes of that in this life. So we, we see as we put effort in, we suffer for others, and we experience the benefits of that sacrifice in blessings poured out to other people, sometimes in blessings that come back in our own life. But our ultimate hope is only in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God advancing in this world, the kingdom of God as it will be seen for all time at the end of our lives. And that ultimate hope is worth it. So this morning, if you are struggling, if you are suffering, I can't tell you that it'll take it all away. 
If you're not a Christian this morning and you're wondering what Christianity is about, I can't tell you that becoming a Christian will take all your suffering away or that will make your life easy. But I can tell you that it is worth it. I can tell you from my own experience that it is worth it. It is worth the effort. It is worth the struggle. It is worth the sacrifice. And it's not just from my own effort. It is from the word of God that I tell you it is worth it. That through many tribulations, we can enter the kingdom of God. Because God is supreme over our suffering. So he's supreme over other gods. He's supreme over our suffering. And God is supreme even over our human weaknesses. I don't know if you caught, one, one of these details here would be hard to catch unless you uh, knew, know your Mediterranean geography super well or are looking at a map. But there's an interesting thing if you look at a map while tracking Paul's journey. As Paul gets to Lystra, he's been going, going on a circle from Antioch. So he's been, he's been in Antioch and he went through the island of Cyprus. He went up into uh, Antioch and Lystra and Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. By the time he gets to Derbe, if he's actually not very far from where he started. It would be a relatively, compared to what he's just done, it's a relatively short trip back to Antioch in Syria, where he came from. So the natural thing to do would be to complete the loop. That's not, it, it makes sense. It would be natural. It would be easy. But instead, if you look at these cities, he retraces all his steps. He goes all the way back around. Because God had a better plan for him. It was not just for him to finish the task off and get back to Antioch. It's like, phew, I'm done. I mean, he would have been celebrated. He had preached the gospel in many places. He had won many converts. But he goes back. He goes back to strengthen the church, to make sure these churches are taken care of, to remind them that they too will have to suffer. And most significantly, do you notice his, his concluding act, verse 23? When they had appointed elders for them in every church. He appointed elders to make sure that these churches would carry on. Because God is supreme over human weakness, over human plans. Paul knew that he was not the man for these churches. He was the man God used to start them. But for them to carry on, they would need elders. They would need their own people to lead and shepherd them. And what did he do with those elders? With prayer and fasted, fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, the funny thing is to think about what else Paul could have done instead of committing them to the Lord. So, oh, that sounds nice. But many of us, you know, what do we do if, we, if we've started something and we want to hand it off to somebody? I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but my instinct, if you have, and what I have is I want to train them. I want to, uh, uh, to plan for them. I want to lay out all the procedures. If you read any book about entrepreneurship, it'll tell you the same thing. Right? That's what you need to do. You need to get these things documented, get people on board to a common vision to make sure everybody's going to do it right. And by right, we usually mean the way that I did it. But that's not what Paul does. Instead of saying that Paul appointed elders and instructed them in how to lead their churches in the gospel that he had taught, he appointed elders and committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Because Paul knew and Paul calls us to know and embrace that God is greater than we are. His plans are better than ours. So if God's plan is for us to go back around the loop, instead of taking the short way, we go back around the loop. If God's plan is to give people, give the leadership over to other people and entrust it to them, entrust it to God, we do that. 
We don't try to keep control because we're weak. We're human. Those elders that Paul appointed, they're weak and human too. But they trusted and Paul trusted that God was supreme even over weaknesses. And the glory of God is that as we recognize his supremacy, as we recognize his greatness, that he uses us. That they needed elders. That God was going to use sinful people, relatively new converts to his kingdom even, to be elders in his churches, to shepherd his people, to teach them the word of God. Because God uses us He is so supreme over our weaknesses that he can even use our weaknesses for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. So the question for us this morning is, what is God calling each of us to do? If God is supreme over our weaknesses, what is it that we need to offer up to him? What talents, skills that we feel insecure in, that we feel unable to use, not sure where to go, is he calling us to use for his glory? If you're thinking, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough for God, for his family, God says you are. Why? Not because of something you figured out in yourself, but because God is supreme. He is greater than all your weaknesses. He is greater than all your sins. He made you in his image for his purpose, and he will use you for his glory. So this morning, as we worship God, we remember these things. We remember that God is supreme over other gods. He's supreme over our suffering. He's supreme over even our weaknesses. So as we consider where we are looking for hope, as we we struggle with the suffering that we find ourselves in, we can know that God is at work. God can overcome those things as we put our faith in him. We turn back to him. We can even let him use us for his glory and seek out where he has called us to. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you and praise you for all your many blessings, that you are supreme over all. We pray that you would teach us, that you would show us, she would show us your glory, show us what you have for us this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.